This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which is rather extensive and continually being updated. Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. No, it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson. And this is The Enemies List. Welcome back to The Enemies List, folks. I'm Rick Wilson. And my guest today is Nell Stanage, a political reporter at The Hill, a guy who has some great insights on the landscape of the 2024 election to come. And I wanted to go across the waterfront with him and talk about a whole bunch of the things that are in the news and developing as we as we are recording this. And with that, Nell, welcome so much. Thank you, brother, for coming on the podcast. Delighted to be with you, Rick. How are you doing? Great, man. Great. So let's start out with the looming story of Georgia, because you've been writing a lot about it and particularly about you know, both the legal ramifications of the Fannie Willis case that's been brought against Trump and some of the political drama in Georgia related to it because of the people that that in the state that actually stood up to Trump at the time in 2020. Tell me a little bit about some of your reporting coming out of Georgia and about the case that's taken up so much of America's attention in the last mm -hmm. few days. You know, obviously, that's a huge case, Rick. It's difficult to sort of grade the cases, the four indictments that uh, sure. the former president faces. But Georgia is a very important one. I think just on a on a basic level, before we get into the, the weeds or into the specific reporting, the fact that that call exists between Trump, who was then president, and Brad Raffensperger, the famous mm -hmm. find me the votes find to me overtake. 11,000, yeah. Right. And Raffensperger has said publicly that he regarded it as a threat when Trump rather vaguely but ominously suggested there would be something criminal if Raffensperger didn't go along with him. Mm -hmm. Th that call alone, setting aside all the other stuff in Georgia, seems, I think, uh, just very compelling evidence in and of itself. Now, to circle back briefly to the point that you are making, I think, about the politics of Georgia, it is very unusual in a sense in that both Brad Raffensperger and Brian Kemp, the governor, stood up to Trump at that point. For their trouble, of course, they earned his ire and wrath, <laughs> and, and he tried to defeat them, uh, tried to get other candidates backed by him to defeat them in primaries, and that didn't work. And that in itself is uh, an interesting fact, especially in a, you know, a state that is a purple state now, but is still fairly conservative in its Republican sure. manifestation. You know, so it's interesting. So, uh, you know, as you're correct, it is a it's a purple state with a, with a pretty deep Republican legislative bench, though. One story I've been following and I'm interested in is that there are now increasing numbers of people in the in the Republican caucus in in Georgia calling for them to use state law to try to remove Fannie Willis from her job, much like Ron DeSantis 
when he finds prosecutors in Florida he doesn't like, he uses executive power to remove them. Have you heard about that? Where, where do you think that story is going? Does that thing have legs? I mean, I, I don't put much past the people that want to get rid of her because she seems to have a pretty determined case here. But uh, where, where does that stand in your in your uh, in your view? So I know those calls are being made at the state legislative level. I have forgotten the, the gentleman's name. I think he's in some way allied with or supported by Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has made that call mm-hmm. in the at a state level to somehow oust Fanny Willis or investigator or whatever. And right. I, I don't know enough about the state level legislature to know if it is possible that that will actually happen. But I think from a political standpoint, a lot of the time, those kind of calls are made in order to generate headlines, frankly, and to suggest that, you know, Fanny Willis could be in, in difficulty. There was a headline at the weekend, something about her being a, a scion of Marxist revolutionaries, which seemed to be based upon the fact that her, <laughs> her grandfather had fought for Jamaican independence, I think. So, you know, I mean, it's, there's an attempt to just sort of portray things in that way. <laughs> Yeah, the 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 uh, the use of Marxism gets uh, gets rapidly deployed at every single moment <laughs> lately. It seems it's just that is a weird a historical point that we now seem to have reached this phase where everyone to the left of the whoever's speaking becomes a Marxist or communist, even when they clearly have no Marxist or communist actual leanings at all. But that's a whole other conversation. On social media, I get called a communist rather frequently. And I'm always asking like, oh, God, did I try to seize the means of production again? (laughs) (laughs) So but the the Willis case in Georgia seems like one and you followed a lot of his legal peril. It seems like Mm -hmm. one that it's the first one where he's had a mugshot where he was actually treated like many other people who are facing indictment in the Jack Smith cases at the January 6th and the documents case, those things seem to be moving along at a, at a pretty fast clip. Are you seeing this all coming to a head in the spring? Because it looks like now that judge Chuckin has said, it's going to be the day before super Tuesday, they're going to start in DC. Willis is pushing this to go very quickly as well. It seems to me that the springtime is going to be, you know, the full employment period for Trump lawyers. It certainly is. And it is just yet again, Rick, just an extraordinary scenario. I mean, I know we say that often, but when you take a step back from this, the overwhelming front runner to be the Republican nominee next year is apparently going to be on criminal trial. One of those trials, at least, as you say, beginning the day before Super Tuesday. And you would have better insights into the Republican mindset than than I would. But it appears that the the fact of him being under these criminal indictments is having no detrimental effect at all on his capacity to win the Republican nomination. Now, a general election is a very different beast. And we can talk about the difficulties that his um, indictments cause him there. But the apparent probable nominee of a major American political party is a person who has been twice impeached and is facing four indictments for serious criminal offenses. Just on its face, it is a bizarre situation that does appear likely to come to a head at the same time as primary season is coming to a head. Remarkable sequence of events. It's the worst legal reality show of all time because the stakes are so very, very high for the country. But I, I think you're right. I think it is something that is so extraordinary. It's not that the that the former president is facing a charge somewhere. 
It's four indictments and counting. 91, I guess it is, separate charges across the, the spectrum of all those cases. And still, he's at 50% plus in the Republican, you know, in the, in the early polling in all the primary states. Last week's debate, I think some people thought they were going to see, you know, the rise of Ron DeSantis from the grave or some sort of big shift in the Republican political chemistry. What were your thoughts on the debate last week? And and look, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll say right in front. I don't think it, it, I think it was moving the deck chairs around on the boat that's following the aircraft carrier. But what were your thoughts on the debate and, and, and the performance of the different, yeah. different folks in that debate? Yeah, so I, I take that point. I was at the debate, actually, in, in Milwaukee. Same. I do take your point particularly about Governor, Governor DeSantis, um, you know, I, my take on it as far as DeSantis' performance is concerned is this. If you had watched that debate not knowing anything about where the race stood, where the polling stood, who is perceived to be the most serious threat to Trump, to my mind, you wouldn't have thought that DeSantis stood out in any particular no, way so. at all. And that seems to me to be a really fundamental problem for his campaign, because when you speak to his campaign, it is uh, premised or predicated on the idea that this is a two-person race that's really between him and former President Trump. That didn't appear to be how the debate uh, went. He didn't seem to me to impose himself on the debate to any great uh, greater or lesser extent. In, in sheer debating terms, I thought that Mike Pence did better than I frankly had anticipated and had, was more aggressive. But I don't see a, a realistic pathway for the former vice president to win the nomination because you know no. too many Republican voters dislike him, essentially, because of January the 6th. Nikki Haley, I thought, did pretty well. But I mean, will that, will that make her a truly viable candidate? We'll see. Uh, there's some polling that she got a little bit of a boost. But all these things are so relative, aren't they? I mean, people are getting a little bit of a boost trying to close a 40 or 50 point gap between themselves and uh, former President Trump. I think that gap, that space there between expectation of Ron DeSantis's campaign six months ago, no, two years ago, or a year and a half ago, rather, I started telling people, I think the guy's overpriced. I think he's overrated. But, you know, a year ago, there was a survey out where Ron DeSantis was at 33 and Donald Trump was at 55 or 51. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in DeSantis world were like, this is it. It's not a high hill to climb. We're going to go after him. But, but yet he's declined and declined and declined. I think it's just because the performance just wasn't there. Support for Rick Wilson's The Enemies List comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Wilson. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Wilson. Odoo. Modern management made simple. The two people that I thought probably had the worst night, uh, aside from Doug Burgum, who got ignored, you had... Tim Scott, who was sort of the great glittering hope for certain donors for a while because he's inspirational and he's aspirational and he's he's comes across as a little more approachable and moderate. You know, I thought Tim Scott had an absolutely just zero of an evening. And I think Ron DeSantis just could not. 
his inability to moderate his presentation, it comes across as I think, you know, as a, as a as a guy who's done a lot of debate prep and debate training for people at every level, he came across as angry and shouty. And I'm not just saying that as a critic of DeSantis. That wasn't a guy you think, wow, I want to put him in charge of nuclear weapons. Right, right, um, right. And, you know, Pence, weirdly, Pence got the most time talking, but mm. made, in my mind, like no... No real headway. He's got the weirdest and toughest path of all in some ways. All these people were playing to try to recapture or capture something. And I think Nikki Haley was sort of preaching to the donor class, like, try me next. You, mm-hmm. you gave up on the you gave up on the guy on my right. You gave up mm-hmm. on the guy on my left. Why don't you try me next? And I don't know if that's going to work. She might get a little bit out of it. But I don't think it's going to really work. But it does speak, I think, somewhat to our our political attention span problem in this country, because as I was on the plane the next morning, Half the stories were not the debate's outcome. Half the stories were about Trump get, you know, was going to be arrested that evening. I mean, he mm-hmm. really is this sort of like enormously like a singularity that sucks all the political oxygen out of every room. He is. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that that causes real, real problems for his Republican rivals because they are always reacting to what Trump does, what Trump says, what is happening to Trump, is this justified? They're always being asked about him. And it's like they're trying to court, so to speak, Republican voters and Republican voters keep saying, yeah, but what about that other guy? And that in itself makes it very difficult. And then you get into the related issue of how they try to thread the needle or navigate around how harsh do they want to be with Trump? Do they want to stay on board with Trump? Do they want to try to avoid alienating his voters? While, as we said, he's facing 91 criminal charges. Um, so I don't think anyone has has navigated that course successfully, to be perfectly honest. Whether, whether there is a successful course to be navigated, I think, is an open question because, you know, I, I may be just st- telling you stuff you already Plainly no, Eric. But if people say, if if you say on one hand, if you go against Trump, like say Chris Christie does, well, that's fine. But like the vast bulk mm-hmm. of the Republican primary electorate just doesn't like it and, and won't vote for you. But then if you're doing a sort of Vivek right. Ramaswamy and and saying how great Trump is, well. Why would people vote for you then? Why would they not vote for the the genuine article as they see it? And that conundrum right. was not being why, solved. Why, why take Diet Trump? Right, exactly. Right. Why why take exactly. Diet Trump? You can have all the sugar and all the caffeine of of original right. Trump. Right. The real um, version. As we go through this weird political tension, this is the you know it's not only the first former president who's been indicted in multiple cases, but it's the first time a Republican primary has been shaped by the legal status of the former president or one of the candidates and to the degree that it has. A lot of people are talking about, you know, that the that the Republican primary will be over a lot sooner than people think. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, we're, we're going to see Pence and DeSantis make a big play in Iowa. We're going to see Christie and Ramaswamy make a big play in New Hampshire. We're going to see Haley and Scott make a big play in South Carolina. But after that, the sledding gets really tough for these candidates against Trump. Where do you see like the probable end point of the primary? It's not going to drag into June as it as it had in the past. I, I don't see it doing so unless something entirely unexpected happens or, you know, and sure. I, I can't envision sure. it lasting that long because 
all of these things get down to fairly simple questions in a way. And one of those simple questions is, if it's not going to be Trump, who's going to beat him? And where are they going to beat him? So, you know, Iowa, as you're well aware, in the Republican mm-hmm. side is very conservative, socially conservative state. Uh, evangelical Christians are very strongly represented there. So you could say, OK, well, maybe that will boost Mike Pence or, or Ron DeSantis. But then they go to New Hampshire and what happens to them there? Or, you know, Chris Christie is putting all his <laughs> chips in New Hampshire. Let's say, and I, I personally Absolutely. find it difficult to see this happening, but let's say Chris Christie wins New Hampshire. So what, the Republican voters of South Carolina are, are suddenly going to come flocking to the Chris Christie flag? <laughs> I mean, that, that seems very difficult to right. imagine. And so in that respect, I think it's, it's just very difficult because Trump is just such a dominant figure in the party. As it stands right now, I would imagine that he continues on his path. And not to prolong this excessively, Rick, but just to your point about Ron DeSantis, DeSantis has ticked down since his campaign began, as you were mentioning earlier. So yes. if there were this appetite for a not-Trump candidate, in a sense, wouldn't it already be obvious, even, even though we're at a very early stage, wouldn't we see a sort of groundswell or for somebody? Whereas, in fact, we're seeing, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. Vivek Ramaswamy takes up a point or two, DeSantis sticks down a point or two, Nikki Haley gets a few points of a bump from a debate. But, like, right. that's not really in a 40-point deficit, you know? It's really hard to see where any of these candidates gets on a trend line that accelerates quickly enough to intercept where Trump is. Now, Trump Trump has bumped up and down a little bit, but he but the median Trump number right now is 54.5%. Mm. It has held there for a long, long, long time. That seems to be sort of the sticky area where where he's at. And, and the problem for all these candidates is Republican states are winner take all. Mm. Trump doesn't even have to crush all of them. He just has to scooch out a little bit you know, and, and land, even if he keeps half that number, he goes into every one of these early states with a tremendous competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. I, I will also say this. One of the predicates of the DeSantis campaign that they told major donors that I spoke to, mm-hmm. they said in the beginning, he won Florida by 19 points. He's going to be competitive in Florida against Trump. And that in the recent polling, and actually he's only been ahead of Trump in one or two Florida polls. And those were almost a year and a half ago. And now it, the, the Florida polling looks a lot like other states. DeSantis is a little better than he does in other states, but he doesn't do enough to beat Trump. Trump's still over 50 percent. DeSantis in Florida was like at 21 in the last survey we had. And and so, you know, it still doesn't bring you home to win the big, you know, Florida being a, the, the first big, big early state, you know, that it just doesn't it doesn't you don't get home on that alone. The Florida strategy, as I can tell you, as a veteran of the Rudy Giuliani campaign, is not a good strategy. <laughs> right. Didn't work out so well for Rudy that year, for sure, as I as I remember, as you and I no, both remember. No. I, I just wanted to pick up something, Rick, if I, if I may, and what you said about the winner-take-all situation, because the winner-take-all thing obviously make gives the Trump people even more of an incentive to have the non-Trump vote as divided as possible. And one sort of notable Absolutely. thing that's going on, you know, a little bit at a, at a secondary level or a little bit halfway below the surface is the, the clear enthusiasm among 
team chump for Vivek Ramaswamy's candidacy. And I'm unconvinced <laughs> that that's real sincere enthusiasm for the ideas that he's presenting. It seems to me that his candidacy is seen by allies of the former president as a useful mechanism to keep the non-Trump vote divided. And so if he gets 10 or 12 percent, well, that makes say Ron DeSantis's climb even more difficult than it already is because it puts off any attempt or any sure. uh, capacity to coalesce that non-Trump vote. He really is kind of having a moment, though. I mean, Vivek Ramaswamy was uh, was in the in the you know, one percent range eight weeks ago mm. and has just had a real surge in the last in the last month, month and a half where he has become the unequivocal uh, Trump cheerleader mm. and where he's become the guy who's trying to get to the right of Ron DeSantis on the wokeism stuff. As you see Ramaswamy, you know, rising here, and look, this may be a Warhol moment where he gets his 15 minutes of fame and then collapses. As you see him continuing here, do you, are, are you hearing that he's starting to raise actual money? Because he's playing a very online kind of game. He, I, I presume he will be. But are you hearing he's, he's like trying to compete in a serious way? Or is this just, a you know, another sort of spectacle for a guy like that? You know, from what I'm hearing, a lot of it is more headline grabbing. You mean, I, I think there are a number of questions about uh, Ramaswamy, if we think of him as, you know, is he a serious contender for the nomination? One is like, does he really want to beat Trump? And if he does, how does he propose doing that? Because that, that isn't clear yet. The numbers that his campaign were talking about as having them having raised after the debate, uh, I don't have them right in front of me, but I think, was it 600,000 or something they were, they were claiming? It, it, it was I a think, figure. I think it was 600,000 after the debate, yeah. Yeah, which is, I mean, 600 grand is 600 grand, but it's not, it's not blow the doors off money either, you know? No, he has been, to be fair, innovative right. in some ways. Like he did that thing about... Uh, supporters who raise money for him get a commission. That's not just something that is sort of reserved for the big bundlers in his campaign. Mm -hmm. And he has been very effective at getting attention for himself well before the debate, whether that is suggesting that, you know, the lowering the voting age, or rather, excuse me, taking the vote away from the under 25s unless they did uh, pass the civics test or involved right. in public service, uh, abolishing the FBI, these kind of ideas that he comes out with do get him media coverage and I think are at least parkway responsible for that surge that you mentioned. That's that sort of very online element of his campaign of, mm. of, I think, and I think almost all of that eats into DeSantis uh, mm -hmm. rather than the other candidates, because you, you look at Pence, Christie, Scott, and Haley, and they're all sort of conventional wisdom Republicans in a lot of ways. And sure, they're playing the Trump game, but they were from the before times. They were from the pre-Trump generation of politicians. Mm -hmm. Ramaswamy is a post-Trump kind of guy, and it seems to me it's a lot more about the entertainment wing of the Republican Party than the than the than the policy wing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
I don't know if you agree with this or not. It seems to me that it's like the policy stuff just absolutely fell flat in the debate. Mm-hmm. I mean, Nikki Haley's talking about the debt and Chris Christie's talking about leadership and and they're talking about foreign policy. And it just it was like a like just the, the audience was not you know out of their seats for that for Ramaswamy and the woke stuff and the and the trolling. It seems like the party is much more interested in that right now than in the policy side. Yeah, and I think it was a debate that was defined by those kinds of moments, by the assaults on the woke stuff, or even sometimes by the one-liners. I mean, the the Chris Christie jab at uh, Ramaswamy about a guy who sounds like chat GPT was a very good line. I, I don't expect that it frankly launches Chris Christie on a trajectory to win the Republican nomination, but it was a very, <laughs> it was right. a, it was a very memorable line. And so the, that kind of... Uh, jabbing at each other. Ramaswamy, to be fair, came back talking to to Christie about the idea that Christie's uh, campaign was essentially animated by a desire to sort of seek vengeance against Trump, all of those those kind of things. That seemed much more... really the the animating force behind that debate than the policy stuff. One other thing, Rick, just on your point about Ramaswamy and the post-Trump, pre-Trump thing, the, I agree with you about that stylistically he's very much a post-Trump figure. But of course, on a more uh, specific level, he doesn't have any record with Trump to explain away or to rationalize or to try to nuance in the way that, you know, former Vice President Mike Pence does or former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley does or former uh, Transition Director Chris Christie does. So that, I think, also probably makes uh, makes things, frankly, a bit easier for Ramaswamy than some of those other people I just mentioned. I think that's right. And I I do think that there's a – and I'm not asking you to, to, to go at the media. I think there is a little bit of a desire in the press, like, please, please, let there be some kind of horse race. Mm-hmm. I don't think your coverage has fallen into that trap as much, but it does strike me that there's a sort of like procedural desire at a lot of the big outlets to try to make a horse race out of this race mm-hmm. and to sort of pretend that Trump isn't going to be on the scene in some way. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, this is this is something that is actually very commonplace. You know, one of the things that one always hears online is accusations of media bias in an ideological sense. Now, I'm not here to defend every single sure. outlet, and people can make their own judgments about that. But in actual of course, of course. fact, to to let your listeners in on a secret of a kind, the the real media bias is toward excitement and newness often rather than ideology per se. There is, I think, often across the board, a media lean into who's who's the fresh new thing? Who's going to make a race of this? How, you know, is this a cliffhanger? Because, uh, well, quite simply to say, well, Donald Trump's in the lead and is probably going to stay in the lead is not a very exciting story to tell. It may end up being the true story. It may end up being the reality, but it's not something that is uh, drives particularly fresh, uh, inspiring coverage day after day. Exactly. Well, what are you covering next, man? I want to let you get. I'll let you get out of here in a second. But uh, what, what's up? What's next on your radar screen that you're really keeping an eye on in the coming? Uh, 
coming weeks and months. So, so I, this may be old news by the time your listeners and viewers are, are listening and watching this. But right now, of course, we've already mentioned that Judge Chutkin setting that trial date for March of next year, the day before Super yep. Tuesday. That is that is huge news. <laughs> and we'll have to see how that goes. The other question, I mean, we, we haven't really got into President Biden much. And just briefly, Rick, sort of big picture it's really interesting. He has been sort of overshadowed by Trump and all Trump's legal troubles, but that may not be a bad thing for Biden in a sense, right? I mean, if if the attention is all sure. on Trump and Trumpian kind of chaos, is that a bad thing because it overshadows the incumbent president? Or actually, is it fine because he can just do his thing and make his argument about economics and day-to-day issues. Keep presidenting. (laughs) Keep presidenting and let the sort of technicolor stuff play out on the other side. I do think in the terms of the the grand Mm -hmm. scheme of things, that's an interesting issue. I I think it is too. We're going to have a fascinating road ahead. Now, Sandage from the Hill, I want to thank you again for coming on today. Tell people where they can find you on social media. Okay, so Twitter, uh, or X as it now is, it's Niall Stanage, and I better spell it, N-I-A-L-L-S-T-A-N-A-G-E. That's the easiest way to find me on social media, and obviously visit thehill.com for all my reporting and all my colleagues' excellent reporting. Absolutely, absolutely. Today on the enemies list as part of his Andy Warhol style 15 minutes of fame as Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek, Vivek, va 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 boom, I don't care, okay? What I do care about is that he represents the worst elements of the post-Trump Republican world. You know, we went on that stage the other night and essentially was trolling to raise money from Peter Thiel and David Sachs and whatever weirdo alt-right contingent is out there who believes that we're the bad guys in the world, where Putin should win in Ukraine, where America is a force not for good but for evil, where the dark vision of a narrow slice of people who believe that liberal internationalism is the worst possible thing in the world, that the stability of alliances is somehow a weakness that working with other countries to defend them against raw aggression from Russia is something that America shouldn't aspire to, but should run from. Here's the thing. I have a suspicion he doesn't believe a goddamn word he's saying. I don't think Vivek believes any of this crap. I do think he's a hustler and a showboater and a con man and a guy who is really willing to say or do anything to get Donald Trump's attention. Notice me, sensei. None of it is real. And that's what's so dark about it. You know, if he had an actual coherent set of policy ideas, it might be interesting in, in, a, in a pre-Trump world. But what you saw the other night in that debate was the reason this guy is having his moment is because he was willing to go up there and do a dance about things that aren't policy-driven. That he's, a, he's a charlatan. The guy is a scam artist. He comes across as somebody who, again, is willing to say or do anything to play in this era of post-policy, post-philosophy republicanism. I'm sure he's going to say worse things between now and then. I'm sure he's going to do worse stuff between now and then. But as we've said over and over again, being on the enemies list, you, you brought yourself there, Vivek. So welcome. You're on the enemies list. Thanks again for listening to the enemies list. 
If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times, please rate, review, like, blah, 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 but you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends, and if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list. <laughs>